Romans 1. Continuing our study here through the book of Romans. Uh, Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do Romans 1, uh, verses 26 through verse 11 of chapter 2. Uh, Lord willing and time willing. Now, for you that have been coming here for the study here for the last couple weeks, just kind of want to remind you a little bit here. Romans is the key book of theology in the New Testament. It is written from this perspective, and it's this wonderful, planned out, when I say logical, I'm not trying to take away from being spirit-led, but it's a wonderful, logical book on our faith, our relationship with Christ, and what it really means to be a Christian. Now, the first week we went through Romans 1 here, we talked about the gospel, the gospel which means good news. And we said the key passage here in the book of Romans is found in verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And we talked about gospel, good news, and that word power. It's that, it's that Greek word dunamis, which means dynamite, dynamic power. There's power in the gospel. The only thing that matters in life is whether people are saved or not saved. Too often in this world we get ourselves caught up in these little areas that don't matter. You have unsaved friends and family. I have unsaved friends and family. The only thing that matters is if they know Jesus Christ. And the whole book of Romans is to lay out this wonderful spirit-led but yet logical argument on how we're all sinners and we all need God. Specifically, we all need Christ. So in Romans 1... It's all about the gospel. The second part of Romans 1, it's about how God has given us creation as his greatest witness and testimony to that he exists. And that's where we left off last week was verse 25, was this idea of creation proclaims the gospel better than anything. But the problem was people started worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Well, here, it's starting in verse 26 through the rest of this, he gets into the subject of sin. Now, I'll be honest with you. Rest of Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3... All is pretty heavy-duty stuff when it comes to sin. And as we joked about last week, it's really not the smartest thing to do is to preach about sin. No one wants to come and hear about sin. If you want your church to grow, you just talk about the nice fluffy stuff, the cotton candy. But the truth of the matter is when you go verse by verse, scripture by scripture through the Bible, book by book, you have to address sin. If you don't mention sin, you're not giving the full teaching of the gospel because the gospel is God loves us and Jesus died for us because we were sinners. And that has to come out and has to be taught and preached on. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I thought about this when I was preparing this lesson. If you've ever worked in a factory setting and you see those signs that say, like, hard hat area or steel toe shoes required, next couple weeks are those are those type of messages. You know, we don't want you to walk out of these teachings feeling bruised and battered. But the truth of the matter is when sin comes up, it's tough to digest sometimes. It really is. But as always, anytime sin is preached in the Bible, what else is preached? gospel. That first song we did for worship today, I thought it was a great song, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. That's exactly what it is. So you're going to hear about the truth of sin today, but you're also going to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it's a wonderful balancing act. So with that being said, let's pick it up here in verse 26, and let's do uh, verses 26 through 32 here at first. It says, for this reason, what reason? The reason that they gave up creation, the witness of creation, and started worshiping the creation rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which is due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them up over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual morality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of good, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That's some pretty heavy-duty stuff. 
This is one of those times where I wish we could just stop at verse 25, skip the rest of chapter 1, skip most of chapter 2, skip most of chapter 3, and then let's talk about the saving faith of Christ in chapter 4. But to really understand that you have to be saved, you have to understand that there's a sin problem. Follow along with me here. Just a couple quick verses in Romans 3 and 2. This is the logic here of Paul through the Spirit. Look at Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's point one. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Now look at Romans 2, verse 6. God is going to render to each one according to his deeds. Everybody has to stand up in front of Christ. Now you're either going to stand in front of Christ as born again and saved, or you're going to stand in front of Christ, and you're going to have to give an account of your life before him. Well, what's the next one? Verse 11 of Romans 2. There's no partiality with God. God's going to judge everybody equally and fairly. In verse 16 of Romans 2, the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Christ. Now once again, if you're saved, there's that peace and there's that, that excitement of heaven and eternity and, and being with your Lord and Savior. If you're not saved, and this idea of standing before God and in verse 6 of Romans 2 will render to each one according to his deeds, it's a little scary. In fact, the book of Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, this is why the idea of the gospel, the good news, is so vital, is because we have to preach the salvation of Christ, but we also have to preach why do you need to be saved? Because we're all sinners. And this is what Romans 1, 2, and 3 is trying to make the point. Look here in verses 26 and 27. Let's start with this. See, what happened was they gave themselves up to sexual morality here in verses 26 and 27. The women exchanged what was natural for them to go with themselves, and the men exchanged what was natural for them to go with themselves. And God says that's that sexual morality. That's ignoring the creation that God originally intended. He originally created to be intended man and woman. So what happened was they went against the creation of God, of what he originally intended there, and that's sexual morality. So what happened was with this type of stuff, he says, well, that's sin. That's sin that has to be dealt with. But here's the thing. It says in verse 26 that God gave them up to their vile passions. Verse 28, and as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. Now, God didn't force anything on them. They chose it. See, this is what happens. We can choose to sin or not sin. We can choose to pray or not pray. We can choose to read the Bible. We can choose not to read the Bible. God will never force anything on you. And so what happens with these situations is, is if you choose to do something that takes you deeper in your walk with the Lord, that helps you grow. If you choose not to do stuff that takes you deeper in your walk with the Lord, you're not going to grow. Stay in Romans and just go to Romans chapter 6 real quick. Romans 6. Everything we do has a choice. And that choice either takes us deeper in our relationship with Christ or it takes us farther away. I heard a great analogy one time I never forgot. And they said, imagine two dogs. One is the spiritual dog. One is the fleshly dog. Well, whatever dog you feed is the one that's going to become bigger and stronger and more powerful. If you feed the fleshly dog, your flesh becomes more powerful. If you feed the spiritual dog, your spiritual life becomes more powerful and strong. It's very, very simple. Whatever you focus your attention on is what's going to grow in your life. Galatians 5 verse 16 says, if you walk in the spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's, it's a very simple thing. It's either flesh or spirit, sin or not. Well, look here in Romans 6 verse 16. It says, do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? How simple is that? You've got to serve somebody. You've got to serve something. You're either going to serve God in righteousness or you're going to serve sin. Now, there's always somebody that says, well, I'm a master. No one's my master. That's a bunch of baloney. You're either serving God or you're serving yourself. That's really what it comes down to. And Paul says, who are you going to obey? If you obey sin, it takes you to death. If you obey God, it takes you to righteousness. But jump back, if you will, to verse 11. Likewise, you also, 
Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Very simply put, it's a choice. You choose to sin or not sin. I choose to sin or not sin. So even back here to our passage in Romans 1, when they gave up the original idea of creation of man and woman and they gave themselves over to that, that was a choice that they made. When they made that choice, there's ramifications to that sexual, sexual morality. And so therefore, since they made that choice, God says, that's a choice you made. If you want to go down that road, I'm going to let you go down that road. I don't agree with that road. I don't like that road. That road will cause damage. It will cause harm to you spiritually, emotionally, and physically. But it's your choice. So they made that choice, and therefore there's ramifications to that choice. What we normally do in the world today is we make a choice that we don't like it, and then we try to blame somebody else. God says, no, when you choose to sin, you choose to sin, which causes harm and hurt to yourself and to others. And he goes, by me allowing you to do that in free will, that's you doing what you want, therefore there's ramifications to that. Well, see, now, jump back to Romans 1. We talk about the sexual morality, verses 26 and 27. We talk about verse 28 of where the mind goes, the body follows. See, they gave their mind up and it became a debased mind, a mind full of sin. And they did things in verse 28 which are not fitting. See, now normally we just stop right there. We joked about this last week, how as Christianity, we like, to, we like to rank our sins and label our sins. But look at the sins in verses 29 through 32. I'm willing to bet that all of us are in that group somewhere, aren't we? See, but the thing is we do is we like to rank sins. Certain sins are worse than other sins. So I look at verse 29. Sexual morality, yes, that's bad. Wickedness, that's bad. Covetousness, okay, yeah, that's bad. Maliciousness, bad. Envy, murder, strife, bad. Deceit, well, deceit's not all bad. Because sometimes little white lies are good, right? I mean, they saves a bigger problem. So I'm going to mark deceit off in my Bible because I don't really think that one's bad. Evil-mindedness, whispers. Well, see, sometimes whispers aren't bad because there's things I want to talk about, but I don't really feel comfortable telling it to your face. So I'm just going to say it behind your back, but I really don't mean it bad. So it, I'm just so I'll leave that one in. Backbiters, well, that's not good. Haters of God, not good. Violent, that's not good. Proud, not good. And we go down this list. Disobedient to parents, well, sometimes my parents aren't very smart, so I'm allowed to disobey them. And we make this little list. And really what happens is in verses 29 through 32, all unrighteousness. In the eyes of God, the little white lie is the same as murder. Now, in our society, there's different ramifications to sin. If you get a speeding ticket, you're not going to go on death row. But yet in the eyes of God, sin is sin is sin. James chapter 2 comes out and makes this abundantly clear. It says if you didn't commit sexual immorality, but yet you murdered someone, it's the same as committing sexual immorality because you broke a law. Once you break one law, you've broken all the laws. You're a lawbreaker is what God's saying. And remember, we made this point before. That word sin is an archery term, which means to miss the mark. So if the bullseye is here, and you miss the mark by just an inch... Compared to missing the mark by 18 feet, you still miss the mark. In the eyes of God, that little white lie is the same as murder. Now, in our thing, we're like, well, come on, Lord. I missed the mark by just a tiny little bit. God says you still miss the mark. It's sin. Alan, can you put that quote up there? And I was preparing this lesson. I found this great quote about this sin being an archery term. It says, when the Bible describes the nature of our rebellion against God, it paints an uglier picture than our simply missing a bullseye. Rather than aiming carefully at God's target, we turn our backs and shoot arrows everywhere else. Wanting to please ourselves, we ignore the true bullseye and set our affections on seductive targets that can satisfy, sanctify, or save. Basically, the target's over here. This is what God wants me to aim at. I turn my back to that target and I shoot my arrow over here. That's sin. 
And so what happens is Paul is trying to make this case here. This is all sin. And so therefore, you've never murdered anybody. You've never done anything malicious. You've never done this or that. But yet, you know what? That little white lie you told, you're still a sinner. And in fact, as we get further on in Romans, you're going to find out it's not even what you do that makes you a sinner. You're going to find out that you're even born a sinner. That's why we need Jesus. See, if unless you present this side of the gospel, you're not presenting the full gospel. The full gospel is, yes, God did die on the cross for, our, for us to bring us peace, to bring us joy, to bring us love. That is all true. But he also died on the cross because there was a sin problem that had to be dealt with. And unless that sin problem is dealt with, we can't have the full teaching of the gospel. So when we read verses 29 through 32, we really do understand what Paul is writing in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in that list somewhere of 29 through 31. Some of us more than others, but we're all in there. Now, what is the result of this? Verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, you are inexcusable. There's, there's no excuse. You, you've done wrong. I've done wrong. Now what are we going to do about that? There is no excuse. But, you know, but I, you know, we try to make some argument here. I'm a relatively good person. I'm a moral person. You know, I, I didn't do the big ones. I didn't do the murder. I, I didn't do those ones. Did you catch verse 32? Who, knowing the righteousness judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Amen. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, wait a second. Now, that one I don't like. Because, see, by approving of them means I'm guilty as doing them. Some of your translations may say, take pleasure in them or encourage them. See, this is what happens a lot in Christianity is we hear this. Well, I would never do that, but I know what he did, and I think that's totally okay. But wait a second. By you approving of that sinful action, you are basically committing that action yourself is what Paul is saying here. You're guilty. And there's a lot of times in Christianity, well, I would never say that, I would never do that, but I take pleasure in what they're saying and what they're doing. God says that's a dangerous place to be. That's a real dangerous place to be. And so what happens is I'm guilty. I'm either guilty by doing it, I'm guilty by okaying it, I am guilty by being born in it, I am guilty. And what am I going to do with this information now? It has to be taken care of. And so I may never do those things, but yet I'm guilty of it. See, and the thing is we look at verse 32. Those who practice such things are deserving of death. See, it's kind of interesting. We like that concept, don't we? We like the concept of judgment. See, when you watch TV, when you see these court cases, you like judgment. You want a fair, just judge that will punish the wrongdoers. But yet, when you're standing in front of the judge, you don't want justice. You want grace and mercy. When it's anybody else standing in front of the judge, justice. The sinners have to be dealt with. The lawbreakers have to be punished. But yet, when I'm standing in front of the judge, Lord, I want some grace and mercy. See, the problem is with that, that's hypocritical. And this is the point now that Paul gets into, is we're all sinners, we're all inexcusable, but yeah, we are hypocrites on this. Look at verse 1 again in chapter 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, old man. Whether you are who would judge, for whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. He goes, you know what, those things you're saying are wrong, you're doing it yourself. Verse 2, but we know that the judgment of God according to truth against all those who practice such things. And do you think this, old man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same thing, that you escape the judgment of God? Paul says, you're judging people for doing what you do, being a hypocrite. I'm telling you right now, the biggest hypocrite in this church today is me. Because I sit here all week preparing this message, reading over this, and I tell you, I read this stuff, and I thought, golly, Lord, I'm going to go teach people this? I've got to learn to live this. We're all hypocrites. We all are. And that's the point that comes out here is we're all sinners. Verse 2, and the truth will come out. When God judges us, the truth will come out. And I want to make this point abundantly clear. If you're born again in Christ, 
You're not being judged on salvation because Jesus has already paid the price. But if you would choose to reject the salvation of Jesus, then you are choosing to stand before God on your own merits and say, I think I deserve eternity in heaven because of what I have done. No, you don't want to do that. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his deeds. Well, I think I'm a morally pretty good person. Yeah, I've done some stuff in verses 29 through 32. But you know what? If you weigh up my life, the good outweighs the bad. That's not what the judgment is based on. The judgment is based on if you've done one bad thing, you're guilty of everything. One thing. It's not have you done more good than bad. It's not have you helped more ladies across the street than not. It's you've done one thing that is wrong that therefore is sin, and so therefore you're guilty of everything. So I'm telling you right now, if you choose to go on your own, you're not going to make it. That's why we need the gospel of Christ. And it's going to be judged, verse 2, in truth. God knows. So you can stand up there and try to make your case of, Lord, I really tried to be a good person. God's going to say, no, I, I know your heart. You didn't. Yeah, but Lord, I really wanted to do what was right. But, you know, my, my environment, the way I was raised, whatever, it, it made me, push me into doing what was wrong. Listen, some of you may come from the most dysfunctional of all dysfunctional. Some of you may have come from the most horrible background you can imagine. We still are accountable for our actions. And God says in verse 6, he will render to each one according to his deeds. We know right from wrong. Don and I and the kids were watching some special last night, and it was about Jim Elliott. If you're not familiar with Jim Elliott, he was a missionary over in the Amazon, and as he went over to be a missionary, he was end up being martyred for his faith. I think it was back in the 1950s. And so what happened was is that even though uh, he was killed for his faith and some others, his wife went back there and spread the gospel, and that tribe ended up getting saved. And so what happens now is his descendants go over and still do missionary trips over to that same tribe. So here's Jim Elliott's kids are going over and now serving side by side the descendants of the people that killed his father. And so they're over there serving the Lord together as brothers in the Lord, even though the one's father killed the other person's father. And so he was talking to the one uh, son of the guy that killed his own dad, and the son said, you know what, when my dad killed your dad, he said he immediately knew in his heart what he did was wrong. Now, how did he know it was wrong? Because the Spirit speaks to the world of what's right or wrong. Even though that man may have not understood the gospel, even though that man may not understood biblical truth, he knew that what his actions were were wrong. I firmly believe, and I've shared this with you before, when people come into my office and say, I don't know what I should do. Nine times out of ten, I follow up with, what do you think you should do? Ninety percent of the time, they already know what they're supposed to do. The Holy Spirit's already told them. They just don't want to do it because it's hard to do sometimes. We know the truth. We know what we should do. And so therefore, God knows the truth more than any of us. So when he looks at my heart, he can read my heart. I had a situation pop up this week where I went into the boys' room, and they had this uh, toy, this Nerf sword, and it was all chewed up and all beat up. I mean, it was just all chewed up and beat up. So the first thing I did is I called Kenan in, who's our third one, and I said, Kenan, come in here, bud. I said, Kenan, why did you do this to the sword? He goes, I didn't do it. I don't believe him. You know, Kenan's the one we're just trying to keep out of jail. You know, it's like, come on, man, I know you did this. And so Kenan said, I didn't do it. And I started thinking, I think he's being honest. So I called Layden in. Layden, who's our youngest? Layden, did you do this? And I could tell he didn't do it. I mean, so then I went to Judah, number two. Judah's just a good-hearted, pure guy. Judah, did you do it? No. Judah goes back to Judah world. So it left Elias and Dawn. Now, <laughs> I wouldn't put it past Dawn, but I went to Elias first. I said, Elias, six years old. I said, Bud, did you do this? He goes, yeah. And he explained to me what happened, what he was trying to do. The reason I bring this story up is because as parents, we think we know the truth, right, with our kids. I was wrong. And I thought, well, he did it. Oh, nope, then he did it. Nope, he did it. See, the thing is, when we stand before God, if we choose to reject Christ, God says, I I'm not mistaken. I know what you did. I know why you did it. I know how you did it. And so therefore, 
I will require judgment out of you. Now, if you have Christ, you're covered. If you don't have Christ, you're not covered. That's the gospel. And so what happened is we have to stand before God, verse 6, give an account of our deeds, verse 11 of chapter 2, there's no partiality, verse 16, all the secret stuff will be brought out. Now, if we have Jesus, it's covered, it's taken care of. I cannot stress that to you enough. That is the gospel message. If we do not have Christ, then we are standing up there on our own. And we're standing up there on our own, verse 3, and hypocrisy. Do you think this, O man, that you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same thing, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? See, it's the goodness of God that brings the gospel message to us. We're all sinners. And I don't know when some of you got saved. Be it in your teens, your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, I don't know. But the point is, you were in sin up until that point. Now, we still sin after we get saved, but yet we're forgiven by Christ through forgiveness, His blood. But the point is, we were living in sin. God in His kindness did not judge us at that point. It was the goodness of God that brought us to repentance. I could have been judged at any time because of my sin. None of us would make it past nine months old probably because we are in sin, but God in His goodness leads us to repentance. And look at these words here in verse 4. We don't use these words a lot, but they're powerful words. Goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, patience. God says, I'm going to be patient with you until you come to the full realization of Jesus Christ. See, here's the problem. People here teaching like this, and what they hear is, God's angry, he judges sin, this is the problem with Christianity. As we like to joke out here, he's the angry neighbor that lives upstairs telling you to be quiet. No, God is so patient and loving with us, verse 4. He waits for us to come to the knowledge of Christ. And when we choose to reject Christ, then he says, I have to be fair and just. I have to be fair and just because that's my nature. Verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath and the day of wrath and revelation for the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his works. Very simply put, you've got a bank account. You're either filling your bank account up with grace and mercy and love of God or you're filling it up with wrath. It's very simple. There, there is no middle ground. It's either I'm going to stand before God in the blood of Jesus, forgiven for my sins, because he's the only sacrifice that could pay the penalty, pay my debt, or I'm standing before God on my own accord and my own quote-unquote goodness, saying, okay, Lord, I'll give this a shot. I think I'm good enough to get in. No way. The Bible says right here in verse 5, we're storing up wrath. And it's not a God that hates us. It's a God that hates sin. That's why he gave us Jesus. So what you have here in verses 7 through 10 now is just a more vivid description of salvation or judgment. And it's very black and white. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by patience, continuance, and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. So eternal life, good, seeking God's glory, God's honor, the immortality that comes with, with, with knowing God. Now look at the bad, verse 8. But to those who are self-seeking and not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek. If you choose to reject the eternal life given to you in verse 7, you then are saying, I want wrath and tribulation and anguish. Then verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also the Greek. Think about this. This is very straightforward. Verse 7, verse 10. Do I want eternal life? Do I want peace? Do I want immortality in Christ? Or do I want verses 8 and 9, tribulation and anguish and wrath? It's that simple and straightforward. Verse 11, there's no partiality with God. It's going to judge. Which group am I in? And so Paul presents this very spirit-led 
Logical case. The gospel is good news. The gospel is witness to us by creation. But when we ignore creation and God's witness and we choose to give our life over to sin, judgment comes out of that. That's a simple, straightforward thing. And the problem is Christianity today, we preach about the gospel, the good news, and how God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life and he will bring peace to your difficult times. And that is so true. I'm not downplaying that. The true gospel message is you're a sinner and I'm a sinner and we need Jesus. And that has to be preached in its totality and its honesty to really understand this. Some of you may be sitting here today saying, okay, James, I know this. Does all your unsaved friends and loved ones know this? Or, James, I know this, but i got to be honest. I'm doing a lot of camping in verses 29 through 32 over there. Okay, That's why we wanted to end with communion today. Because we could just finish this lesson right here and we could all walk away with our tail between our legs and our head down saying, yep. I'm a horrible sinner. That's true. You're a horrible sinner. I'm a horrible sinner. But the gospel is good news. Jesus died on the cross for your sins and my sins. So I can be set free. I can have verse 10. I can have peace. I can have that. Isn't that a beautiful, wonderful thing? And so in the middle of the judgment, there's also grace. Oh, there's so much grace in God's love. And so that's why it's so important for us on a message like this to end with this idea of communion. And to end in, in really one of two ways. You know, it, it says here when it comes to talking about communion, it, it says that... As we prepare our hearts for communion, we're supposed to do a couple of things. The first one, it says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy man will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. See, we want to give time here to say, Okay, Lord, I read verses 29 through 32, and yep, I've done that one. Yep, I've done that one. Yep, I'm doing that one. Lord, forgive me. We want that time for us to examine ourselves and say, Lord, I'm sorry for that sin that I'm doing because I want to be more like you. It goes back to our first couple verses that we talked about. Who are you presenting your body to, sin or not? Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what we're going to do here in a little bit. Lord, search our hearts. Search our hearts corporately as a church. What are we doing wrong? Search our hearts individually. Lord, what are we doing wrong? Because we want to be made right in you. We want to be done. We want to be made perfect and complete in Christ. And perfect doesn't mean sinless. It means complete in salvation. So at this time... There's two questions to ask. Number one, have you ever accepted Christ? Have you ever really stopped and thought about this? I am a sinner, and that sin has to be dealt with. Now, that sin is not dealt with. I am choosing to stand before God on my own at the end before God and me, and I'm going to try to make a case and prove to God that I'm a good person and I deserve heaven. No way. No way. If you've never come to that understanding that Jesus died for your sins because you couldn't do it, and he forgives your sins because you can't find forgiveness anywhere else, then you need to understand today is the day of salvation to go to the Lord and make that relationship with him right. That you need to say, okay, Lord, I want this. See, so often in these type of things, you see a lot of churches, everybody bow their head, raise their hand. No, we don't need to do that. Do you want that? If you want that, that's where you go to him and say, Lord, I want that. Lord, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe carries that emphasis of not just believing that God exists, not just believing that Jesus was a real person, not just believing in Easter, believing that this is how it works. My sin can't be paid for. It's a debt that I owe. And Jesus says, I will pay the price through my own blood on the cross. And you accept that. And as you accept that payment, you say, here's the deal, Lord. You died for me, and now I will die to myself and live for you with everything that I have because I want to. That's salvation. Number two, maybe you've already done that before. And now you're looking at your life and you're saying verses 29 through 32. Once again, I'm spending too much time over there. Now is the time to go to the Lord and say, Lord, 
I don't want that anymore. I want those things that are hurting me emotionally, physically, spiritually, those things that are hurting my marriage, those things that are hurting my life. I want those things to be gone. I want to live for you in all that I do and all that I say. That's the reason we talk about sin, not to have some type of hellfire and brimstone message. We talk about sin to say we want those things that are causing damage to us to be made right in us. That's the beauty of this. So, Let's go to the Lord, just as it says there. Let's examine our hearts. But let's, let's have him open up our hearts and say, Lord, is there anything in here that needs to change? Is there anything I'm doing that I know I'm wrong in? Lord, forgive me for that and give me strength for that. Or maybe now's the time to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I want this. I want this relationship with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you, we come to you corporately as a body. We come to you as individuals. And we want to do exactly what your word says here. We want to confess our sins to you. We want to have you examine our hearts. We want you to examine our lives and see what areas need to be worked on and see what areas need to be changed. And Lord, we want to live for you with everything that we have. In the name of Jesus, we want to live for you. So Lord, we come to you quietly. We come to you independently. And Lord, we say, look at us. What needs to be worked on? What do we need to confess to you? Lord, as we come to you, we open up our hearts and our lives to you. We ask for your hand to be upon us. Lord, it's so easy at these times to feel overwhelmed by your perfection and our lack of it. But Lord, your love is so wonderful. You love us even while we were still sinners. You died for us. Lord, we want to live for you in all that we say and all that we do. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Go ahead and bring them in, Bob. Kids are going to be coming.